Planetary Radio is public radio's only weekly series about space exploration. I'm Matt Kaplan, and I hope you'll join me as we explore Mars, look for life in the universe, and fly through the rings of Saturn. We'll talk with the men and women, scientists and dreamers who are guiding us to a future beyond Earth. And don't forget to enter our weekly space trivia contest. That's Planetary Radio, Mondays at 5.30 p.m., right here on KUCI. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Good evening. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and online at KUCI.org. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer. And your host is Mari Frank. If you don't know Mari, let me tell you a little bit about her. She's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity and From Victim to Victor, a step-by-step guide for ending the nightmare of identity theft. She sits as an advisor to the State of California Office of Privacy Protection, and she's a sheriff reserve here in our county. She's testified many times in Congress and the California Legislature on privacy and identity theft issues, and you may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, ABC News, O'Reilly Factor, Geraldo, Montel, and lots of other shows. And last year she had her own 90-minute PBS special called Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash Privacy Piracy. Good evening, Mari. Good evening. Who's our guest tonight? Well, it's very exciting because, remember, we had gotten an email from a gentleman in Nova Scotia who had a great professor that he thought should be on our show. And so tonight we are actually going to be speaking with this wonderful French-Canadian accent, but by our uh, wonderful guest. And he's going to talk to us about this incredible program, which is very unique at the University of Alberta in Canada. So, Mark, are you there? Yes. Uh, Hi, Mary. Oh, how you doing? Okay, now I'm going to tell you how to pronounce in my name, since I had to learn to pronounce your I'm Mari. Oh. Okay. Well, it's even easier for me, Mary. <laughs> okay, so let me tell let me tell you a little bit. I'm going to tell our guests a little bit about your background because it is very uh, interesting. I'm speaking with Mark Aurel Rossico, who is um, who was born in Montreal and now he lives in Edmonton with his wife. He got his Bachelor of Science in Biology and a Bachelor of Law from the Université de Montréal. And he has uh, interned at the Federal Court of Appeal under supervision of the Honorable Justice Robert Descare and uh, other judges as well. Presently, he is a staff lawyer with the Office of the Information Commissioner of Canada. And if you remember, Lloyd, we actually had one of the commissioners on our show and we got to meet her in Toronto. Um, By the way, uh, Mark is also a member of the Canadian Association of Professional Access and Privacy Administrators, and he's currently also a graduate student in the LLM program at the law faculty at the University of Alberta, so he's getting a master's in law as well. He he does uh, research on uh, privacy and information access and the protection of privacy, so we're going to learn about that. He is also co-author of this huge book. Look at this, Lloyd. I've got this. It's about four inches thick. It's called The Federal Access to Information and Privacy Legislation, Annotated 2006. Canada has really led the way in quite a bit of information privacy legislation, so we're going to learn about that. It looks like a phone book. Yeah, it looks bigger than a phone book. Yes, it's great. And... um, so we're going to find out a lot about him, but he is actually the an adjunct professor, and he is manager of this new IAPP certificate program, and that stands for Information Access and Protection of Privacy Program. It's in the governmental studies at the University of Alberta, and we're going to find out all about it. So it's pretty exciting. Mark, can I ask you some questions about your great program? Yes, that's why I'm here. Okay, great. (laughs) 
Mark, first of all, let me kind of backtrack. What did you do in the Office of Privacy, um, the, the Privacy Commission? What were you doing before you came to the University of Alberta? I was a counsel with the Office of the Information Commissioner of Canada in Ottawa, in the capital of Canada. Uh-huh. And as part of the legal services team, I provided the legal advice to the office on investigations and court files. You know, Mark, we don't have a privacy commission in the United States. And um, the closest thing that we have is the Federal Trade Commission, which has as one of its jobs to really investigate um, unfair practices. And that includes privacy issues. But we don't have a privacy commissioner at the federal level like you do. And our, at the state level, we don't have a privacy commission. In fact, California and Wisconsin are the only two states that even have an Office of Privacy Protection, but it doesn't act like what you have. Could you explain to our audience what, you know, those people who didn't get to listen to our one of the privacy commissioners, Ann Kuvikian, when she was on, could you kind of explain how your office of um, uh, the Privacy Commission actually works in Canada? First, I must say we have, at the federal level in Canada, we have two commissioners. We have one information commissioner and one privacy commissioner. As uh, and in each provinces, there's uh, one privacy and information and privacy commissioner. They have one uh, person doing both uh, roles. As in federal, we have maybe more money, and then we can split the 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 role into a person. Uh, In at the federal level, the commissioner is more uh, kind of an ombudsman. Uh, like commissioners, so they don't have the order-making power. So the, the commissioner is uh, uh, responsible to supervise the uh, the enforcement of the, of the act. The commissioner will receive the complaints from the citizens. Uh, like, for example, the information commissioner will receive a denial of, uh, if somebody uh, we uh, receive a denial of access, is denied access to uh, his request or her request. Okay, so, so what might be a request? So let's say I wanted to see the records that you have on me in the tax department, for example. Is that something like the, the complaint would be that, that the tax department didn't want to give me records that they had on me? Would it be something like yeah. that? It, it depends. Like, if you want information about yourself, then the request would be uh, made under uh, the Privacy Act. Okay. It's, uh, if it's uh, uh, information about the operations of a department, if it's public information in, in, in the, the public organization, then it will be done under the Access to Information Act uh, request. And uh, so depending uh, under which uh, statute you, you made your request, then you will complain or to the privacy commissioner. So if it's your, for your personal information, you will complain to the uh, privacy commissioner. If, if it's for uh, access to public information, you will uh, file a complaint with the uh, information commissioner. Right. And then you said that they, they only have ombudsman power, which means they can try and work a deal and try and see if, if the privacy commissioner could get the uh, agency to provide the information and, and get the, um, maybe the citizen to kind of roll back what they're asking for? Is that, is that what happens? Well, the commissioner has uh, very wide powers of investigation. Uh, mm-hmm. So he, in that sense, the commissioner is like a court of law. He can uh, issue subpoena, uh, receive evidence in, in private uh, confidence, uh, and once the investigation is complete, the commissioner will uh, issue a report containing the, 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 his recommendations. Uh, again, during the investigation process, there can there there is some kind of mediation ongoing between the the complainant and the, the department. Right. But uh, officially, at the end of the investigation, there's a, a report issued with uh, the recommendations of the commissioner, uh, and. The department can choose or to comply with the recommendations or not, and then there's a next step after that. Okay, so let's say that the department does not want to comply with what the commissioner is requesting. So then what's the next step? The, the complainant can go before, uh, once the, 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 the process is done, so the complainant can go before the court, the federal court, for judicial review of the department's uh, decision not to disclose information. So this is one of the options. Or there's also the possibility for the commissioner, 
with the complainant's consent to file for a judicial review before the court. Right. So the, the, the commissioner will go and, and fight in court uh, on, uh, for the, the, the complainant. And, and how often does the complainant win if the, if, the, uh, if the commissioner has a report that recommends disclosure? Does, you know, do the judges usually go with what the commissioner says or is it just start, is it like, you know, starting all over? Yeah, it's a review, a de novo review. So oh. it, it starts all over again, and they can take, they will look at the recommendations, but it's not binding on the court, so it's, so it's a de novo review. Oh, okay. All right, so that's what you were doing. You were helping with investigations at that level? Yeah, and the, the court uh, cases. And yep. the court cases. Oh, so you actually took some of those cases to court? Yep. Oh, that's yeah, it's a it's a lot of work. The departments can keep us busy for a good year, but but again, I must mention for people uh, listening that it's just uh, about one percent of all the complaints that uh, uh, there's about only one percent ending to to court. So oh. there's a lot of the, the commissioners work really hard in mediating and in solving the problems, and it's really really the last resort to go to court. Right. So most yep. of it does get resolved before it ever gets there. But the few cases going to court can keep uh, lawyers busy for a while. <laughs> it sounds similar to the Federal Trade Commission because they can also take things to court as well if, if, if a company doesn't comply. They try and get a consent decree, which is, it sounds like what you do as well. So then, how did you get to the University of Alberta to run this program? How did that happen? <laughs> I like the West. But uh, beside that, I had written books and articles on access and privacy. I had written some modules uh, for the University of Alberta courses. I was teaching access and privacy in Ottawa, at the University of Ottawa. And when the time came for the IAP, the Information Access and Protection of Privacy program, to find an academic in the field, uh, they asked my employer, the commissioner, if I could uh, come and work with them for two years, and uh, here I am in, in Edmonton. Oh, that's pretty exciting. So so tell us about this program. It's pretty unique, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, no. If, uh, to be unique, it's the, the first comprehensive online post-secondary, so university-level program for information access and protection of privacy offered by a Canadian university. So we started that uh, in, in 1999, and we're still the first uh, offering such a program. And the program foc focuses on the theories, concepts, issues, and best practices involved in the appropriate administration of access and privacy legislation. Now, do you know of any other programs in the United States or anywhere in Europe that has this kind of certificate? No. Uh, right now, I, I, I don't think there's any equivalent uh, program being offered, uh, that a, a kind of comprehensive uh, course, uh, six courses uh, at the university level. No, uh, I don't think there's nothing like that. Yeah, I know. We were t You and I were talking about there is um, an organization called the International Association of Privacy Professionals, and they've developed a certificate that people study on their own, and then you can take a one-day class and you get a certificate of um, a certified information privacy professional, but it's not an intense uh, certification program like you have. I, I would just make to clarify the, the, the terms we're using. Uh, the, we have a certificate of study. At the end, when you have completed your, the, the, the courses, you, you receive the University of Alberta issue to you a, a certificate. This is like a kind of diploma or a recognition that you have right. completed the courses. In the U.S., uh, the, the, the program that is there, it's, it's good to raise the awareness of, uh, of the issues and the legislation, but what they're, they're doing, what the, uh, it's called also, they have the same acronym, IAP. Right, that's why when, you, when yeah, I got contacted, yeah, I, I thought, that's weird, it's IAPP, it right? Add to, it, it adds to the confusion, but right. this is, such is life. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, they, they offer a, a professional certification. Right. And, and so they're not really uh, for training you. They, they expect the, the people coming to the, in the, that organization to already have right. the knowledge necessary. So what they're doing, they say, if you can pass our test, this is, you receive a certification. Right. But, but uh, to, I think to be certified and as an expert, you need to have more stringent standards. And I think the standards uh, right now, uh, with the IAP certification available in the U.S. are too low. 
Uh, I would say that certification means that the public has some sort of protection when they do business uh, right. uh, uh, with a certified expert. And it is too easy to sell certification. Uh, and and at the end, it, certification must me mean something. So uh, I think the, the public can always decide this is the level of protection I, I need. This is the, le- the the standards I want from, from someone. Right. But again, would you choose to be treated by a surgeon that has only three months of medical school? Uh, I don't <laughs> think so. So at one point, I think uh, the 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 IAP community, the the, the 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 information access and protection of privacy professional, will have to come together and say, uh, we're not just clerk or we're not just like the the, the at the, the the end of the food chain. We need to 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 be able to understand the legislation, to make analysis, to to, to, to we are better than that, and and we want standards that are are that really reflect what we are. And as we speak, there is a certification working group in Canada chaired by Frank Work, the Information and Privacy Commissioner of Alberta. And the goal of the working group is to have standards by spring 2007. Right, right. In a way, what the University of Alberta has done so far with the courses is to try to define core knowledge. What are the basic knowledge? What is the core curriculum to, of that uh, field of pro- of that profession, and now we are at a point where we can really develop standards and say this is what a person certified in that area needs to to know and and need to be uh, uh, the skills required to to for that job. So right. the, 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 uh, the IAP cert- uh, certification available in the U.S. is is good for awareness, but I think. It, it, it needs to to step up a little uh, a notch to to really uh, protect the public better. Yeah, you know, I uh, I belong to the International Association of Privacy Professionals, and I actually took that certification. It was a hard test, but I passed it. Thank goodness. And and you're right. They expect you to study on your own and to try and learn this through your own professional experience and through studying the laws. And I think it's hard because you don't have, as you said, a whole curriculum that you're learning. You know, you review one day, and if you don't know it, you don't pass the test. And if you, but I, I do think you're right that it it is helpful to have a whole body of curriculum. Now I'm looking at this um, brochure that you sent me, which is great, and it has the courses. And why don't you tell us about the the couple, the two courses that you teach? Well, I, I teach the, um, the 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 information access and protection of privacy foundations, right? And the uh, information access uh, in a liberal democracy, right? So you sent me the curriculum a little bit, but I'd like you to tell those people who might want to take the class, tell us a little bit about what you're going, what you study in that first one about the foundations of information access and protection of privacy. So the, the foundations uh, course is the portal course. Uh, this course has been designed to provide an overview of the field. It starts with a uh, uh, history of the concepts of privacy and freedom of information. The course provides the definitions of key terms. It defines some important legal concepts like uh, paramountcy, like the, the non-withstanding clause we often see in that kind of legislation. Mm-hmm. It provides an overview of the landscape in terms of access and privacy legislation in, in Canada and in the world. So the, the, co- the, the goal of, the, of this course is really to provide the students with the basic information needed to understand what the field of access to information and privacy is all about. Because we, we cannot take for granted that everyone has already uh, past experience in that field. So some people see access uh, and privacy uh, uh, as a career move. So the, this course really gives you, uh, will you like it or, or not, a kind of, of feeling. And uh, so we have a lot of, of our students taking this course as an elective uh, course as part of a program designed for municipal administrators. So it's really an, an overview and, and it, it gives you a, a good idea. Can, do, you, do, do I really want to continue in, in that field or, or not? So, right. Yep. So, so is this mostly for people who are going to be in the government sector? Is that what it's... No, uh, it's really designed to cover uh, both uh, private sector and public sector. 
because uh, again uh, privacy principles and, and uh, access to information principles are all the same well maybe access to information is a bit less uh, needed in the private sector although there's a lot of legislation requiring disclosure and and uh, things like that but but uh, it gives you a good idea of the need for balancing privacy and access Right. You know, I'm, I'm looking here like at the table of contents and, and you give a history of the legislation um, in in Canada. And I think that's really important for us to understand a little bit about because you have entirely different legislation in Canada than we do in the United States. And in fact, Canada is considered adequate um, with regard to uh, information use in with the European Union you you actually have a a better standard according to the European Union than we do right yeah well <laughs> yeah yes I mean you do I mean they're, you're you're considered adequate so so tell us a little bit about the the legislation in uh, in in your democracy well, I can just to give you first a landscape of of the legislation in Canada. First, we have the the public sector legislation, which deals with access to information and protection of privacy. Right. We have such legislation at the federal level. So I'm talking about the Access to Information Act and the Privacy Act. Right. And at the provincial and territorial level, we also have specific legislation. So, the, so for the public sector, there's uh, every government has uh, every level of jurisdiction has its own uh, statute. Then we have the private sector legislation, which deals with protection, uh, uh, protection of privacy. Mm -hmm. uh, this is more recent. Uh, it has been adopted in 2000 and came into full for, uh, in force in 2001, uh, and uh, in full force in 2004. But uh, and the, the federal legislation, the, the personal personal information protection and electronic documents act. I, I will refer to it to as PIPED Act. Okay. Uh, uh, this one applies to all the province, uh, all the federal uh, organizations, and all the um, the, the provincial uh, provincial organizations. But uh, some provinces have adopted similar legislation. So this means that the provinces that have adopted the, the, such legislation in the private sector won't be covered by PIPED Act. Oh, and, so, uh, so, so the PIPED Act does not preempt this, the provincial acts at all? It, uh, it has to be, uh, the, the, unless... So it's, it's a, like it's a floor, not a ceiling or something? How does it, how does it do? I mean, yeah, in other words, it, 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 it's the minimal requirement. So right. if the province, the province uh, adopts something better, it's fine as long as it's recognized as being similarly, uh, right. similar right. legislation by by the federal. Oh. And you, ha you have uh, the Personal Information Protection Act, PIPO. Uh, British Columbia adopted one in 2004. Uh, Alberta adopted one in 2004 too. So they're like the the uh, brother and sister, if we can right. say. Uh, Quebec had uh, as one since uh, 1996, so, and uh, so Ontario. Mark, Mark yep. tell me. So, so what is the goal of that act? That's that's rather recent. That's your newest um, privacy act, right? So, what is the goal of that uh, that set of legislation? What is the, some of the most important uh, provisions of that legislation? Well, it's it's the the basic principle up on, until the, the adoption of the PIPED Act. Uh, it was the Canadian Standards Association Code, uh, the, the the privacy principles, the ten privacy principles that were. Uh, so it was um, uh, only. Uh, how could I say that uh, people were apply? It was not mandatory. So the, you, 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 companies were were free to to uh, uh, share and adopt, sell, or what? Adopt adopt the principles uh, as their fair information practices. Like so, the, the ten principles were accountability, identifying purposes, consent, uh, limiting collection, limiting use, disclosure and retention, and so on. So what what the, the what we have done is to take that co uh, voluntary code. That, that that was used by the organi private organizations, and we we have uh, framed the, the act, the the PIPED Act, around that that uh, code, and in fact, the schedule to the PIPED Act is is exactly the code itself. 
Okay, so, so you had kind of a self-regulation where people it, were, exactly. where the good companies were, were really following the fair information principles, and then just to make sure that it was enforceable with everybody, you actually made it into a statute so that everybody has to adhere to it, not just the good companies, you're saying. In the Exactly. Yeah. Right, right. Say it so well. <laughs> well, I don't know if I say it so well, but I just, I, I kind of understand what you're talking no, about. No, it's exactly what I was trying to say. <laughs> right. Um, let me introduce you again. We are speaking with Professor Mark Aurel Rassico. Uh, who is an adjunct professor and program manager for the Information Access and Protection of Privacy program at the University of Alberta in Canada. Now, that's uh, kind of the west area of Canada, right above, where are you, above what, Montana? Montana, just beside the the Rockies, and we're about a four-hour drive from Jasper, five hours from Banff. Oh, beautiful. Yes. It's beautiful, it's beautiful but cold. (laughs) <laughs> it's cold, but it's so nice winter, winter with all this ski and no, it's a nice oh, place, very yeah. nice city in Minton. Yeah. Now, I understand is the are all of the courses in your program taught online? Yeah, every everything we offer uh, six courses, and all the courses are are available online through uh, WebCT. Uh, I ca- I call WebCT the virtual classroom. Oh. So, uh, the, the, the benefit of the, the, the WebCT tool is that it allows for asynchronous learning. So in other word, uh, words, uh, students and instructors don't have to be connected at the same time. And mm-hmm. additionally, an online program uh, provides a flexible uh, national professional development that so you can, you can share ideas, you can uh, see what are the best practices in another province, in another mm. part of the country. So you learn from other jurisdictions. And uh, so you have a better uh, idea of uh, understanding of the issues, and you have more perspective of the issues. So, so Mark, do you also teach like face to face? Do you have a classroom, or is this all online? Everything is online. Everything is online. Wow. Everything is online. So, you know, they're they're doing more online classes here at the University of uh, California, Irvine, where I'm on campus, and I I have uh, they've talked to me about doing an online class and I've never taken one I've never taught one so how does that work do you have do you have videos or what what do you do actually to teach it online uh, we rely on the WebCT, like I was saying. WebCT is a kind of, of software that you, you, you enter with a password, so you, it's like entering a classroom and you have your key, you enter the classroom, and then you, you, uh, you have uh, different uh, discussion forums, hmm. and uh, depending on which modules you're working, but each course uh, has about six modules, so when you, you, you go uh, online, you, you go for, let's say there's a discussion on module one, on a specific activity, so you make a posting, and the, there's an instructor that will uh, also uh, make postings, invite you to answer some questions, uh, uh, take some things happening in the actuality uh, in the news, and say, well, what do you think about it, and and generate a discussion and bring the material that you you receive a package uh, by mail, and you have readings, you have uh, we have developed original uh, material for the course, plus there's a, a supplementary reading. So once you have done all your readings, you can participate in the course and the discussions, and you learn through the discussions with uh, your, your instructor. And the and the, you are the the other students too. Right. So it's all but like you type it in. Is there any voice discussions? Uh, v O I P. You know. Uh, we we tried. We're not there yet. Some right. uh, we have uh, some uh, courses are offering uh, some iPod uh, uh, excerpt, but uh, we're not there yet. We we it's more kind of chat. And it's not, uh, as I said, it's asynchronous, so you, you, it's not live. You, you're not there at the same time as the instructor right. or the other students. There's some tools, and I'm, I, I've used uh, some for uh, office hours, and you can say to people, I'll be there at 2 p.m. Mountain mm. Time, and then students can connect, and you can chat live with the students. Hmm. But but again, we don't see the face. I, there's some technology we're looking at having maybe some technologies with, with the face and and the image. And but uh, right now it's really typing. So yeah. so when they finish a particular module, then is there an exam? They come in and they get, type in a password and they get the exam, or what? How does that work? 
Ben, each each courses the way we evaluate each courses is there there's a, a, a midterm each courses there's a, a midterm exam so after the first three modules you will have a midterm exam online uh, there's uh, also a final exam for the module modules one to six and uh, the final final exam is in person so we have exam center around the country and we ask students oh. to go at the exam so we can at least uh, verify their identity and make sure that the person who is registered is really the right. doing the final exam. That's a good one. Identity theft. Let somebody who knows this stuff take the test for you. <laughs> <laughs> and and, and uh, uh, part also of the evaluation for the course is the, um, the es there's an essay uh, for, for on one of the t uh, topics uh, chosen by the, the, the instructor. So the essay is worth uh, about 30% uh, of the final mark. So at the end, when you, once you have completed the full program, you have written uh, at least five uh, midterm exams, uh, five final exams, and and five you have written at least five essays. So you, you you're prepared to you, you know your stuff. Oh, yeah. And and each one course one one course is thirteen uh, weeks in length, so it's one semester. So one course is one semester, and to to complete the the the, the certificate, you, it takes about two years. Right. I noticed you have. Let's say this. You tell me about the two courses you have, and then you have. Uh, Privacy in a liberal democracy, privacy applications, issues and practices, uh, information access in a liberal democracy, information access applications, issues and practices, and health information access and privacy. Yeah, that's that's an important one uh, that we've been dealing with with uh, our health information Pot uh, portability act as well. So, yeah, um, so when they do this, what kind of what kind of job can you can you get? I mean, is there does this certificate en enable you to get a certain type of uh, career or job? Well, it, it has uh, facilitated the, the 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 career move of many of our students. Um, the the main areas is for uh, we have four uh, or eight tip coordinators so access to information and privacy coordinators or freedom of information and privacy coordinators so uh, this is really a good uh, certificate to have when you're looking for a job in that area there's also uh, many of our graduates have uh, found uh, jobs in the uh, in the office of the information and privacy commissioners mm. uh, because they know you have a you've learned you you, you the, the certificate provides you with with a kind of uh, uh, passport that people know where you're coming from and what you, you, you learning experience was so uh, the commissioners are, are really uh, supporting of the program Right. Uh, now, I would think that, that uh, lawyers would, if they want to work, uh, you know, with businesses, they're going to have to take this so that they're going to... Ha Do you have a lot of pr chief privacy officers that, that um, take this? For example, lawyers that want to be a chief privacy officer in a company. Do you have chief privacy officers in, in your country like we do here in the United States? Is that, yeah, but, is that yeah, becoming a big issue? With with the the adoption of PIPED Act, uh, every organization needs to have somebody in charge of uh, privacy. So we have uh, now we have chief privacy officers, or the, there's different names, but uh, yeah, chief privacy officers. We see that uh, more and more. We have some uh, students that are uh, privacy officers. We have also lawyers uh, in our courses, and the privacy consultant too. Right. It would seem to me that that would be something really important to have if you um, are going to be advising companies, because now that the companies have to comply with this law, they need to have somebody who's uh, able to consult with them and, and advise them properly. So. Yeah, there's, uh, uh, there's also other kind of uh, private organizations offering workshops and kind of uh, short fast-track training, right. but uh, the, the, there's a lot of products available, On uh, but at the university level, uh, we are the only one right now offering a comprehensive program. So here we are sitting on the campus at the University of California in Irvine, and it's an online course uh, certificate. Do you have international students that come and take this, that take this course? We, we have some international students, and... Uh, Unfortunately, not from the from the U.S. We have uh, from Mexico, from uh, Grand Cayman, uh, and uh, but we're we're try again. It's 
it requires more time to promote the program outside the Canada. Uh, we're just starting to be known in Canada, uh, so it's, uh, it's well. You're doing it right now, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, but uh, we have uh, we have uh, to to promote the course uh, at an international level. We have an international essay contest, oh. uh, which is open to all U.S. residents. So uh, if uh, your essay is chosen, you win a free registration in the IAP Foundation's course online. So you can be anywhere in the U.S. And if your uh, essay is chosen, well, you, you get that course uh, for free. Mm -hmm. And we also offer a PrivaSoft. Uh, PrivaSoft is a corporation uh, developing uh, softwares uh, to help uh, IAP man managers to do their job, so to process the, the records. So uh, PrivaSoft has a, a scholarship of $500 every year to an international student who has completed the program with superior academic achievements. Right. Well, I would think, you know, this uh, this particular campus ha is really pushing technology, and it's obviously in, in the heart of an area that has uh, high-tech companies and privacy becomes a huge issue. So there might be students here on campus who are graduating in, with an IT degree that may want to even get yours as well. Um, I want to just introduce you again. We are speaking with uh, Mark Aurel Rossico, who is a lawyer and an assistant adjunct professor and the program manager of the Information Access and Protection of Privacy program at the University of Alberta in Canada. And he um, is telling us about the program, but also, you know, helping us to understand the difference between Canada and the United States and, what, you know, what is going on with, with privacy. In your Information Access and Protection of Privacy Foundation, you tell us about all sorts of things about history of privacy, the legislation. Um, do you know, how is your history of privacy and the legislation, how is that the same or different than the United States? Well, I, I would say it, it's, cl it's uh, closely related. And, and just for, to give you a, an example of what we cover in the foundation's course, uh, we talk about uh, the, the we refer the students to the book written by Robert Ellis Smith. Uh, oh yeah, he he's been on our show. Ball, uh, uh, ben Franklin's website, Privacy and Curiosity from Plymouth to the Internet. So in in his book, uh, he mentions that uh, Franklin wanted privacy for himself, yet he desired to know about others. So there's a dichotomy in the society where. Uh, you, you, for yourself, you, you want to stay everything private, but uh, you want to know everything about others around you. Right. So w w we start uh, talking about that in, in the foundation's course, and, and uh, we talk also about um, how uh, privacy is uh, in the U.S. Is, is there, but it's not really mentioned. Like uh, at the time the Constitution was drafted in 1790s, something like that, uh, some concept in, in the U.S., and I think uh, you, you can apply that for, for in Canada in part, uh, concept of individualism, principle of limited government, and the importance of private property. So these concepts were integrated in the Constitution in the U.S., and, and although there's not a, a specific word of privacy in, in, the, in the Bill of Rights or in the U.S. Constitution, you still have all these concepts that, in a way, uh, private property. You, you, you want the, the, the citizen to have a, a, a privacy in, in his own house around him right. or her. So uh, it, we all came, come from the same background, and, and then we, we talk about uh, the, the famous uh, Warren and Brandis. Uh, the, right, the, the right the to be left alone. Right. Exactly. Uh huh. And and but in Canada, really, the right to privacy, I think, really appeared in 1978 as part uh, as part four of the Human Rights Act. It's really there, where the, there's a, a mention of uh, right to privacy in our legislation, and and then it's not uh, it has never really been expressed as such in the in the Charter of Rights. But uh, there's some again for for, for at looking at it. There's some concepts that we could say yes, uh, it flows from that from that section that there's some kind of privacy. Uh, in the, in the um, Quebec um, uh, Quebec Charter, uh, we always do uh, things differently in Quebec, so we have our own charter too. Uh, there's a specific right to privacy uh, for individuals there. 
You know, there is in California, too. Our Constitution, our California Constitution actually mentions privacy as a right that we have as Californians, which is interesting because it is not in our, like, as you said, it's not in our national constitution. And California is really the leader in privacy legislation, so that makes a lot of sense. So maybe Quebec is like the California of the Canada? <laughs> exactly. It is. It is. And we also had, um, in 1974, we passed the... Um, the United States Privacy Act, which is our federal legislation dealing with government agencies and access, and, it, and we talk about the fair information principles about collection and right to access and right to correct. So we're similar in, in that Canada and the United States started the information privacy in the late seven, mid-late 70s. So if you were to define privacy now, you know, we talked about Brandeis in the late 1800s talked about the right to be left alone. If you yourself as professor would define privacy, how would you define it now? Mm. If, if I could find uh, the, the, the exact definition of privacy, I think I could win a prize there. <laughs> but <laughs> because uh, I think uh, privacy is a concept. Like, th there's are many, there, there, there are many aspects to privacy. There's a, spa a special, uh, spatial aspect to it, a physical aspect, a, a informational aspect to it, uh, even a, decision, a decisional aspect uh, uh, to, to, to privacy. So... Um, I think we're used to refer to privacy, uh, maybe in the legislation, uh, as kind of informational privacy. Right. But, but I don't think we we can really define what privacy is because uh, privacy itself varies depending on your culture, your background, where you are, what you're doing. It depends a lot on the, on the context. I don't think there's there's really a place where you can say this is privacy and this is your right and nobody can play with with that privacy right uh, 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 and maybe there there's one but i haven't seen all the legislation every we talk about privacy and even in, in french th th there's no equivalent to the word privacy so we like privacy is really it encompasses a lot of things is it intimacy is it anonymity right. is it that so what what do we mean by privacy but in french you could not say privacy you would have to mention anonymity or 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 intim intimacy or mm. something so so uh, even culturally i think the term uh, is difficult to to, to define and uh, and that's why we have so many problems trying to apply all these laws because they, they talk oh yes the privacy uh, this and privacy that but nobody wants to sit and say okay what is privacy uh, i take for example the privacy act the federal privacy act we 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 talk about personal information so we say the name alone is not personal information, but the name associated with information that uh, that can be used to identify the person. Right, personally so, identifiable. Then, right. And then they they make a list, but it's not a, a comprehensive list. So the, there can be other things. But after a while, like we have an idea of what it can be, but we're not sure. So we we let the door open. Uh, and privacy again when you're a public servant for for some aspect of your work some things are not considered private as for a citizen in the private sector would be considered private so i, I think to the, to try right, to right like if it, somebody if somebody looked at your email at home you'd feel violated whereas if somebody at least in the united states if someone sees your email at work there is no reasonable expectation of privacy at work on on the uh, employer's computer in the United States. Yep. So it's it. You're right. It depends where you are, what culture. It's like it, kind of like how they say in in uh, the United States Supreme Court talked about pornography. They know it when they see it. I guess we could say you know privacy when you feel it or when you see it or you when you feel violated. Because, you know, if somebody yeah. uh, puts up a, a camera, you know, and can look into my bedroom window or my bathroom window, you know, I feel very violated. So I think it's when people feel violated, it might be an invasion of their privacy. But, but, but again, what you're doing in your bedroom and in your uh, bathroom, uh, it's not the society business. You're not really accountable to the society. Right. But if you're molesting a child in your bedroom, ah, 
Yes. Then the society does not approve of that. So even though you have a, some kind of expectation of privacy, the expectation of privacy will vary depending on what you do in a way. Right. And, and because you, you cannot expect to have full privacy if you're doing something against the law. Right. Or because the, the law uh, enforcement agency can always obtain this, uh, an, uh, an order to uh, enter the, the premises if they have uh, enough uh, evidence to showing them that you're doing that. And, and we're seeing that too with uh, all the, the internet pornogra child pornography. Sure. Like they know what's happening, but they, can, they can't get to you because the internet provider doesn't want to provide your your address and, and things like that. So they, they need to go to the court and, and obtain a, an order. And sometimes they don't have enough evidence. Right. So it's, uh, yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's, it's a tough one. You know, when we talk about the definition of privacy in, in different cultures, you remember Alan Weston had written his book years ago in, what was it, the late 70s or 80s, about the... Um, you know the right to have some control over your personal information and and i recently when we were in chicago we interviewed the quote man on the street and asked everybody what what was their definition of privacy and of course we got something very different from everybody and what their feelings were and some people are more sensitive than others to uh what they might consider private you know what i'm saying so it's yep. uh, it's very interesting. You when you uh, please explain to us when you teach about when when you teach you talk about transparency and accountability, and I I'm not sure if everybody um, who's listening really understands what you mean by transparency and accountability with regard to uh, sensitive data. Well, I I think we talk like we we talk about a lot about. The privacy, but but transparency and accountability must also be taken into account. Uh, and citizens are, I, I think, citizens first must understand that they are accountable for their actions. And when individuals occupy public functions, they must do so as if someone was watching their every move. So this is for the public people in the public. Uh, but I I think we have put uh, much emphasis on privacy, but not enough on accountability. And, and I w just want to co come back to the public uh, functions. In the past few few years, we went through some scandals in Canada, like the sponsorship scandal, uh, where some elected officials from a particular party uh, signed uh, contracts with some marketing firms close to the party for services that were never delivered. So a commission of inquiry was uh, issued a report, the Gomery Commission, and, and the commission expressly called for more transparency in the public system. And, and the House of Commons, uh, with the minority government, uh, the, the conservative government, recently passed uh, Bill C-2, uh, hoping to bring more transparency to the system. Uh, but uh, you mean there so were like some fraudulent contracts that were made, or some like uh, self-dealing type contracts? Is that what what happened with the scandals where they were kind of like kickbacks or something? Yeah, kickbacks. That they they were paying for services that weren't uh, given, and uh, the money was going uh, back to. Uh, uh, to, to, to the party, right? And right. Uh, so, but 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 I, again, I think transparency, accountability is important because, uh, and mainly because of uh, of uh, accountability. Um, and you I, have I you have a, like a Freedom of Information Act, don't you? Similar to what we have. In other words, um, journalists and and anyone really has a right to ask for uh, under the Freedom of Information Act ask to see those contracts for example they we have a right under our federal law to to get information to see what's happening in government so yeah, is but, that but, but you don't have that or you do have yeah, that yeah we, we have that this is the access to information act but right. but the the right to, to to access is modulated with uh, many uh, exceptions to the right right and right. just to come back to to the accountability i think that that uh, there's a need for a healthy flow of personal information in our society because people uh, downplay the importance of accountability and, and only responsible citizens that are accountable of their actions uh, can, we, we can really live in a good society. 
and uh, like I, I just want to give you an, an example of uh, sometimes I'm wondering what, what the concept of family uh, where it's going and I think it's all linked with uh, transparency trust and uh, I was uh, at the post office um, and the post office left a notice of delivery uh, delivery on, on my door at home and I wasn't there so they left a notice and it was for a parcel so I took the notice and went to the post office the employee took the, the notice, went in the back, came back with the parcel, and asked for my ID. Right. He looked at my ID and said, you're not the right individual. Uh-huh. I, I, I said, look, the, the package is for my wife. And, and, and the address, the addresses were the same on the notice, on the package, and on my ID. Uh-huh. He, said, it, he said, no, it must be your wife. <laughs> so th- this is what I'm afraid of, a world where family... Where, where trust doesn't mean anything. So if it's really the individual, if it's not you, so you cannot do the groceries or anything for, for your wife yeah, or for your children crazy. because it's not... So uh, this is what I'm afraid we may become uh, with, with time, and, and that's why I think it's no, always... You're, you're absolutely her. right. Like if I want to pick up a prescription, if my husband is sick and I want, and the prescription is in his name and I can't pick it up, which, which that isn't the case. I mean, you, you can, but that, that's kind of what you're talking about too. If my husband was sick and he can't pick it up himself, I should be able to pick up his prescription for him and bring it home to, so he can get well. So I, I, that's why I think what we're studying and what I want, uh, it's all about uh, finding the right balance. What is the right balance between the, the, the privacy access but also in in the what kind of society we want tomorrow do we want to trust people or do we want to to lock ourselves up in in our house uh, wearing a bulletproof vest and and sure the the criminals are out there they're they're there for your information but but we, we at one point we also have to to balance and and see what are the best solutions right and and one when you're talking about transparency and accountability we're talking about transparency I just want my audience to understand that means that when they're giving information they should know what it's going to be used for if if you go on a website and they're collecting information you should know what they're going to do with that that's transparency like if they're going to sell that and and you're going to get um, all sorts of uh, mail and email because you gave it then and you had no idea that we're going to do that. You thought it was only for a particular purpose, and they use it for another purpose. Then that's there's no transparency there. You don't know what's going on. You don't know no, what's yeah, being. Yeah, the, the, the organizations, private organization or even public organization, needs to be uh, transparent on the the, the 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 way they will treat, collect, use, uh, uh, and disclose their information. But I'm also talking about the transparency in in a way that as citizen. We need to be transparent in our public actions and in our like. And I can come back. I can go to the the court records. When we go to court, uh, it's not a, a private enterprise. You're, you're going to court before a public court of, of justice. So you're in a way you're accountable for your actions, and and you have to be transparent to what you're saying in court, what your your the evidence you're filing. So in that way, I'm talking also about transparency. I know you, you're writing or you have written about the courts and transparency. And in fact, you and I had a conversation just yesterday about the kind of um, the discussion about privacy versus transparency in the court system. For example, we've tried to, for court records, we have been noticing that court records going up on websites that have the social security number and very sensitive information can subject people to identity theft. So we have had various states, uh, and including California, that have uh, redacted that information so that people who are unscrupulous don't get access to the death certificate, for example, that has the social security number or the birth certificate that has the parent's social security number, that's all redacted online. How do you feel about that kind of stuff, redaction of sensitive information? I I think we have to be careful because that information was not redacted uh, before the the happening of the, the, the Internet. So um, uh, what I'm writing about is to be careful not to push the open court principle, a principle that has a long history in our justice system, and look at it and make sure that we're not doing that just because of of, of fear and and, and uh, sometimes fear uh, make sure that that the fears 
uh, are justified and, and and there's a foundation for it um because uh, after a while if if all that information and even like the the social insurance number or or the the part of the name is not disclosed sometimes just that that kind of information can be useful for other citizen in another lawsuit in a future lawsuit so i i think we have to be careful to push aside too fast and uh, the open courts principle and that's why I'm uh, I'm writing on, on that for in my thesis because I want to take time to reflect on it and research the the implications of uh, of the open courts principle and to push that aside because of the the internet and technology. Yeah, and we talked about that how how really that's tough and I I I really value the the privacy issues of of open courts uh because for example, it seems to me that when you talk about that, well, it, you know, on a, on a death certificate, um, the original death certificate is not redacted, so why should it be redacted on, on the Internet? And it seems to me that in, in the past, we didn't have such easy access to information. It wasn't, uh, that information wasn't able to be used in the way that it's able to be used now because the social security number is u is the key to the um, information for the credit bureaus, et cetera. So I think maybe even offline, we are going to have to think about what are we collecting? Do we really need to collect everything or should we only collect what we actually need and and then uh, redact what we don't need and not provide access of stuff we don't need. I mean, <laughs> I think that's the question, too. Why do we need yeah, to but provide... We, we never, 50 years ago, we never asked a question and the information was still public in the, in, in the court house. And, and, and now I think inter I see Internet as a great tool for democratization and, and where uh, the simple citizen living outside the, the city or far from the courthouse can now, uh, w w with uh, going to the public library or anywhere where there's a, a internet connection, they can have access to that information. And, and, and because all the, the powerful organizations, the wealthy people will always find a way to, to find, to, to fund, the, to pay someone to get that information and to collect it. So I see Internet as a democratization, and now we're saying, oh, there's too much information in circulation. But, but this, the information was already in the public uh, sphere. It was maybe uh, more difficult because of practical obscurity, we right. use the term. But it was more difficult to get to the courthouse. You had to pay $20 for your parking and blah, blah, blah. But now that the simple citizen can just type, uh, oh, what's the name of my neighbor, and find uh, the, the address or see if, if everything is okay. Like, I think we just gain by being more transparent and having more access, but this is my <laughs> point well, of view. Well, I know, and you're going to have to interview me because, I, <laughs> because <laughs> I have a very different view of it. But Lloyd is telling me only have a couple minutes left. I wanted you to just tell the website of the um, the University of Alberta holds an access and privacy conference every year and so would you just tell when that's going to be and give the uh, website so people can perhaps go to that yeah the conference will be uh, June uh, in June June 13 to the 15 three days we will have uh, David Banisar as uh, one of our keynote speakers and the website is www.accessandprivacy.com .ca, access and privacy in one word, .ca. And, uh, and the, then give your website for the program at the university. Yeah, it's uh, www.iapp-aiprp.ca. And if, if you go and look at our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy, you can just click because we are um, linking right to um, a Professor Rossico's uh, program there. So we can uh, give you that help to go and see more about it. So Lloyd is saying we are out of time. Thank you, Mark, so much for joining us. And we will talk. Maybe you should interview me about uh, mm -hmm. your thoughts about public access and, and information at the courts, because I could tell you something very different than you think. <laughs> Thank you, Maggie. Thank you very much. Okay, we will talk to you soon. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net, and hopefully our podcasts as well. I'm Mari, the host of Privacy Piracy. Join us every week from 5 to 6 p.m. right here on KUCI. And thank you, Lloyd, for my great engineering. 
and we hope to have you join us next week. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.